Okay, so we're also recording the call, as I said, so that we can post that on the uh, on the internet and on the web uh, on our website. Uh, so today we're talking about limitations, and um, I'm not going to go around the country and tell you what limitations are state by state. Rather, I want to talk today about some of the issues that can arise when you're attempting to determine what the statute of limitations is. So let's say you have a claim that's come in against a bond. It could be a commercial bond or construction bond, and you want to determine whether the claim is timely. Or you might have a potential salvage claim, and you want to figure out what the limitations period is um, on asserting that claim. In these scenarios, you'll need to determine what the applicable limitation period is in the applicable jurisdiction. This presentation has arisen out of uh, our handling of several large bankruptcy cases where there were hundreds of bonds all around the country, and we had to get in and figure out what the limitations periods were for these bonds and all these various jurisdictions. And so in the course of doing that analysis on, on those cases, we, we became pretty, uh, pretty uh, adept at, at determining the limitations period. And also, we learned quite a bit, about, a lot about you know, the, the pitfalls and the complications that can arise when you're trying to determine the limitations. And you would think that it would be pretty straightforward, and sometimes it is, but other times it can get very complicated, and we'll talk about that uh, as we go on today. But first, let's start with a little background. As everybody knows, statutes of limitations set a prescribed time in which a plaintiff must file a complaint after a cause of action accrues. If the plaintiff does not file a complaint within the limitations period, the complaint may be dismissed, and the claim is lost, regardless of the underlying merits of the case. I say that it may be dismissed, and that's because asserting the statute of limitations is an affirmative defense that must be raised by the defendant. So if you don't raise it, courts won't necessarily throw it out. Now, there's, a, there's three generally recognized policy reasons underlying statute of limitations. The first reason is to protect defendants from stale claims. Statutes of limitations are said to provide defendants with security in their business and their planning by allowing them to rest assured that after a certain period of time, they cannot have liability for acts committed in the past. Statutes of limitations serve to protect defendants by ensuring that they will not be disadvantaged by the effect of the passage of time on their ability to defend themselves. It's recognized that defendants will not be able to produce evidence to absolve themselves if memories have faded, witnesses have died or disappeared, and or evidence has been lost. And so that's one of the policy reasons behind having statutes of limitations. The second policy consideration is to protect the courts from having to hear stale claims when their time could be better spent on more recent and thus presumably more important disputes. Limitations periods allow the court to clear dockets of stale older claims, thereby increasing judicial efficiency and limiting the misuse of time. The third policy justification for, for statutes of limitations is to punish plaintiffs who, who quote-unquote sleep on their rights for an inexcusably long time. Thus, a plaintiff who delays a suit beyond the limitations period brings the punishment upon themselves and deserves to be penalized for allowing their claims to go stale. As one court put it, a plaintiff's knowing delay in filing suit increases the chances that justice will be frustrated by the loss of evidence and cripples the defendant with fear of perpetual liability. As a result, the punishment of dismissal of limitation, on limitations grounds gives the plaintiff the incentive to file suit timely. So with these policy considerations, every jurisdiction has enacted uh, various, um, various limitation statutes. 
So the issue is when you're trying to determine the applicable limitations period, there are three general places you'll need to look. First, check to see if there is a limitations period in any authorizing statute for the bond at issue. Second, check the, the language of the bond or the contract itself for any contractual limitations provisions. Third, check the general statute of limitations provisions if you haven't found anything in the first two places. So first, let's take a look then at authorizing statutes. The first place to look for a limitations period on a bond is in the authorizing statute if there is one. For example, if a state statutory scheme requires the posting of a bond to secure the issuance of a permit or maybe a contractor's license or to secure a warranty or some other type of service, then you should check that authorizing statute to determine if there is a limitations period applicable to claims against the bonds that are required by that statute. And oftentimes that's the case. Such specific limitation periods in the authorizing statute will control over any other more general limitations periods that might exist elsewhere in the law and, um, and, and, and might otherwise apply to a bond. And that's because of a general um, rule of statutory construction that the more specific statute will control over the more general statute. So perhaps the best uh, and most well-known example of an authorizing statute in the surety industry is the Miller Act and the Little Miller Act. The Miller Acts provide a specific limitations period for a claim on the bond, and that limitations period will govern and control over any other general limitations period in, in whatever code applies. Of course, in the Miller Act, <coughs> in the Miller Act and Little Miller, Miller Act situations, the limitations period in the acts only apply to bonds issued by the general contractor and its surety to the public owner. So even though the project may be a federal project or a state project, the limitations period for a claim by a, su a supplier or a sub-sub against a subcontractor's payment bond is not governed by the Miller Act or Little Miller Act. In that scenario, you've got to look for other limitations provisions. If there is no authorizing statutory limitations period, then you need to review the general statutory limitations provisions of the jurisdiction. Some states have specific limitation periods for claims against bonds. For example, in Maryland, there's a limitation statute that provides that claims against bonds must be filed within 12 years. If there's no statute applicable specifically to bonds, such as we have in Maryland, bonds are generally considered to be a written agreement <coughs> or, or, or a written contract, and states' limitations periods for, for those types of, of documents would apply. In some jurisdictions, there may be a limitation period for what's known as specialties. And at common law, bonds were considered to be specialties. So if there is a, um, a limitation provision in a particular jurisdiction relating to that, relating to specialties, then that might apply to a bond claim. Sometimes it can get pretty tricky. For example, recently I handled a case where a claim was being made by a county against a surety on a permit bond. There was no limitations provision in the authorizing county code or in the bond itself uh, dealing with limitations. So I was looking at the general limitations provisions in the state of Maryland. In Maryland, there's a general statute of limitations applicable for breach of contract actions, which is three years, but a bond is considered, and a bond is considered in Maryland, by the way, to be a contract, uh, so that provision would apply. However, as I noted a moment ago, in Maryland, there's also a specific statute that provides limitations of 12 years on claims against bonds. So that would be the provision you'd look to. But 
the permanent bond in question was also a forfeiture bond. So <clears throat> it was a forfeiture bond because the county could make demand on the bond even if it had no damages once the permit provisions were violated by the principal. In addition, the county code referred to the bond as a forfeiture obligation. Now, Maryland has a specific statute of limitations for forfeiture claims, which is one year. The provision provides that, quote, a prosecution for suit for a fine, penalty, or forfeiture shall be instituted within one year after the offense was committed, unquote. Now, I argued in that case that the forfeiture limitation period applied to the county's claim and that the principal the principal's violation of the grading laws was an offense under the statute, and further, because the forfeiture statute is more specific than the general claim against the bond statute, then that one-year limitation provision would apply. Another example of how convoluted the analysis of what limitations provisions apply can become is found in Arizona. And I'm not picking on Arizona because it can get convoluted in many states. But for this discussion, let's assume we have a claim against a utility bond. The bond secures payment for utility services like electric, water, gas, etc., and states that if the principal fails to pay for the services, the surety will be obligated to pay. Under Arizona law, there's a three-year limitations period for claims on open accounts. Arguably, the bonded agreement between the principal and the utility company is an open account. However, under Arizona law, the statute of limitations applicable to the underlying debt is not necessarily applicable to the guarantee of the debt. And that's true in most states. Louisiana is an exception to that rule. The Arizona courts have held that a guarantee contract is a separate contract pursuant to which a guarantor warrants that the principal shall perform rather than agreeing to perform jointly with the principal. And such guarantee contract is separately enforceable and independent of the obligation of the principal debtor. Accordingly, Arizona courts have applied a six-year statute of limitations for contracts the claims against bonds as opposed to uh, going with the underlying uh, limitations period. However, Arizona courts have also recognized that guarantees are not automatically subject to the limitations period for contracts and that a determination must be made on a case-by-case -case basis according to the terms of the guarantee and the nature of the underlying obligation. So right there you've got, you know, you're, you're just looking for what the limitations period is and now you've got a situation where you've got to deal with it on a case-by-case -case basis and try to figure out if there's been any prior case law dealing with the type of bond that you have. Moreover, although a utility bond is a written agreement, the six-year statute of limitations for a contract in writing under Arizona law may not apply because Arizona makes a distinction between contracts executed in the state of Arizona, which is the six-year period, and contracts executed outside of the state of Arizona, which are subject to a four-year statute of limitations. So as these examples demonstrate, the analysis of what limitations provision applies can be complicated by the wide variety of limitation periods under various state laws, the nature of the obligation at issue, and even the facts and circumstances of how or where the obligation was entered into. So another potential wild card in the limitation analysis is whether the bond or contract is under seal. Sealing a document is an ancient practice that originally involved pressing a person's seal or family crest into a hot wax on a document. When a document is executed under seal, it establishes that the contract was made for consideration, and by applying a seal thereto, the signor is confirming the consideration and further authenticating his or her intent to carry out the contract. 
The seal can take many forms. It can be in the form of a stamp, an impression, a scroll, or even just the word seal, or L period, S period after a person's signature. The bond or the contract can also recite that the parties intending to be bound hereby set their hand and seal, etc. In some states, the effect of sealing the document has been abolished, but in other states, it is still alive and well. One effect of sealing the document is that it may extend the limitations, period. For example, in Maryland, as I noted a moment ago, the general period of limitations on a written contract is three years. But if the contract is under seal, the limitations period becomes 12 years. Under Massachusetts and South Carolina law, for example, the limitations period applicable to a document under seal is 20 years. So check for a seal on a bond or other instrument that you're dealing with and then check to see if there's a separate limitations provision for documents under seal in the applicable jurisdiction. So next, let's turn to contractual limitations periods. Many bond forms contain a provision with a limitations period within which a claim on the bond must be made. These are referred to as contractual limitations provisions. For example, the Consensus Docs 260 performance bond has a contractual limitation period which reads, two years after default of the contractor or substantial completion of the work, whichever occurs first. The AIA A312 2010 version of the performance bond states that any proceeding legal or equitable under this bond shall be instituted within two years after contractor default or within two years after contractor ceased working or within two years after the surety refuses or fails to perform its obligations under the bond, whichever occurs first. Now, it appears that the vast majority of jurisdictions generally hold that contractual limitations periods are enforceable. However, there may be a few restrictions on the general rule. Most states hold that contractual limitations periods will be upheld, but only if they are reasonable and the provision is clearly set forth in the agreement. As one court explained, the contractual limitations period must be reasonable under the circumstances of the particular case and sufficient to allow a plaintiff to file a claim after the alleged damage has been ascertained. Whether a contract limitations period is reasonable may be determined by considering the provisions of the contract and the circumstances of its performance and enforcement. I have a case pending now on appeal in the District of Columbia where I obtained a summary judgment on behalf of the surety based on the one-year contractual limitations provision in the bond. The District of Columbia enforces contractual limitations provisions, and we argued that the provision was clearly reasonable in our case because it was the same one-year period as the limitations provision under the Miller Act and the Little Miller Act. If a one-year limitations period was reasonable for purposes of public policy in the Miller Act, it clearly is reasonable in our bond. So we'll see what the D.C. Appellate Court has to say about that. In some cases, a contractual limitations period may not be enforceable if the court determines that the limitations period violates public policy such as a contractual limitation on an important statutory right. Finally, a contractual limitation period may be prohibited by statute. For example, in Maryland, the Maryland Code prohibits limitations provisions in an insurance policy or surety bond if the limitations period is shorter than the statutory limitations period. Of course, in Maryland, with that 12-year statute limitations on bonds in general, it's hard to imagine that any contract would have a provision that's longer than that. So most um, limitations provisions in bonds in Maryland are going to be unenforceable. Similarly, in Florida, the Florida Code provides that any provision in a contract setting the period of limitations on an action arising out of contract 
for less than that provided by the applicable statute is void. So you need to be careful when dealing with contractual limitations periods and determine whether such provisions are valid in the applicable jurisdiction and whether such provisions are reasonable. Now what about a situation where uh, limitations doesn't apply? Uh, so this is another wild card in the, in the limitations analysis and it's a question of who is making the claim. There are several states that still apply the doctrine of, and I'm going to say this in Latin, although, you know, my Latin's not too good, nullum tempus accurit regi, or in English, time does not run against the king. Pursuant to this doctrine, a limitations period will not prevent a governmental body from bringing a claim against a bond after the limitation period has expired. The theory that no time runs against the sovereign is generally followed in regard to ordinary statutes of limitation unless the state is expressly or by necessary implication included within the operation of the statute. The historical justification for the doctrine is that the government cannot be expected to be as vigilant as individuals are in preserving their rights. Governments are impersonal and thus are limited to acting through agents such as state officials who, as one court noted, are generally few in number and fully occupied with the regular routine of official duties. That judge must not have been to the MVA recently. Moreover, the doctrine is thought to further the great public policy of preserving the public rights, revenues, and property from injury and loss by the negligent, negligence of public officers. So there's a dispute among the jurisdictions as to whether the doctrine of nullum tempus should be applied to counties or municipalities. It, it applies to the federal government, it applies to state governments, but when you get down into the lower levels, there's a question about whether it applies. And some states do not extend nullum tempus to municipalities or counties in any circumstances, and you'll find examples of that in Nebraska and Alabama. In other states, uh, nullum tempus is extended to municipalities and to the full extent that they apply to the doctrine, or they, that they apply the doctrine to the state government. So it makes no difference if it's a county or a municipality. Uh, you'll find examples of that in Mississippi. The remaining states that have addressed the issue applied nullum tempus to municipalities and counties in a limited fashion using a variety of tests that all sort of center around the same theme. For example, in Iowa, the nullum tempus doctrine does not exempt actions by municipalities and counties from the general statute of limitations unless the action involves a public or governmental activity, <coughs> excuse me, as opposed to a private or proprietary activity. In Illinois, nullum tempus applies to municipalities with regard to public rights and property held for public use, but not to contracts or mere private rights. Pennsylvania applies the so-called public-private test to the application of nullum tempus and held that the building of a school was a public function and thus nullum tempus applied and the action was not barred by the statute of limitations. Many courts have observed that the public-private test is difficult to apply. Maryland courts have stated that many of the decisions regarding whether a function is governmental or proprietary in nature are confusing and almost impossible to reconcile. The line of demarcation between private, corporate, and ministerial and governmental, political, and discretionary activities or functions by municipalities or counties is difficult to discern and more difficult to define and sometimes illusory in practice. And so when you look at the law, you'll see in some states they'll say, well, building a school is a governmental function. Some states will say it's not. 
Some states will say building roads is a governmental function. Some states will say it's not. It's really all over the place, and um, as, as these courts have noted, sometimes difficult to apply. One interesting result of the application of nullum tempus is that it can transfer to the surety. So a Maryland court held that a surety, which had paid a judgment owing to the state and thereafter sued a debtor as subrogee of the state, is entitled to stand in the state's position in reference to its claim against the debtor and enjoy the state's exemption from the operation of the statutes of limitations under nullum tempus. So if you got if you got one of these old claims that you paid and you weren't sure if you could go after somebody for salvage, if you're standing in the shoes of the state and that state recognizes nullum tempus, then you might be able to pursue that claim even if a lot of time has passed. All right, so the question becomes, when does the statute of limitations begin to run? Once you've determined what the statutory or contractual limitation period is, the next question is, when does the limitation begin to run? Limitation periods begin to run when the cause of action at issue accrues. Typically, a cause of action is said to have accrued when all of the elements of the, of the cause of action exist. As the California court stated, in ordinary actions, the statute of limitations begins to run upon the occurrence of the last element essential to the cause of action. For example, it is generally held that a cause of action for breach of contract ordinarily accrues and the limitations period begins to run upon the breach. A surety's obligation under a bond typically accrues when the principal breaches the underlying obligation. A surety's indemnity claim accrues when the surety incurs a loss. Accrual can also be defined in the statute or the contract itself. Thus, in the example I gave earlier, the AIA A312-2010 performance bond, the contractual limitation provision provides that any proceeding, legal or equitable under this bond, shall be instituted within two years after the contractor default or within two years after the contractor ceased working or two years after the surety refuses or fails to perform, whichever occurs first. So the accrual for limitations period on the A312 bond is defined as the first to occur of those various events. Um, <clears throat> so then there's this uh, um, another rule that pops up in, in determining accrual, and that's called the discovery rule. In some cases and in some jurisdictions, the general rule regarding accrual is modified by what is known as the discovery rule. Discovery rule postpones accrual of a cause of action until the plaintiff discovers or has reason to discover the cause of action. The rule is generally expressed as a new or should have known standard. Under the discovery rule, a cause of action accrues and the limitations period begins to run when a claimant knows or in the exercise of ordinary diligence should have known of the injury. The court applies the discovery rule to determine when a cause of action accrues if an element of the cause of action is not immediately apparent. Under the discovery rule, suspicion of one or more elements of a cause of action coupled with knowledge of any remaining elements will generally trigger the statute of limitations. The rule avoids dismissing a suit on grounds of limitations when a plaintiff is blamelessly ignorant or his or her cause of action, of his or her cause of action, but it does not afford protection to a plaintiff who knows about the injury but has not determined the identity or cause. So there's an example in Maryland where uh, a religious order was building a new convent. Shortly after they moved in, the sisters noted that there was some roof leaks. They didn't know what the cause was or who was responsible, so they hired an engineer. The engineer conducted an inspection, issued a report, and identified who was responsible and what the cause was. The sisters then filed suit three years from the date the report was issued, but more than three years after the roof leaks began. 
The case was dismissed as barred by limitations because under the discovery rule, once the sisters became aware of the leak, they were on notice of the claim and had a duty to investigate and limitations then began to run. The ultimate determination of the cause and the party responsible was not the triggering event. Now, once limitations is running, it is possible that those, that those limitations can be told. Of course, everybody's probably familiar with a, uh, a tolling agreement where the parties contractually agree to toll limitations, but limitations can also be told by, on equitable grounds. And, and limitations um, can be told by what is known as the doctrine of equitable estoppel, which is a well-established concept invoked by courts to aid a party who, in good faith, has relied to his detriment upon the representations of another. One court in a, um, in a uh, Miller Act case put it this way, estoppel arises where one, by his conduct, lulls another into a false security and into a position he would not take only because of such conduct. Estoppel, in the event of a disputed claim, arises where one party, by his words, acts, and conduct, led the other to believe that it would acknowledge and pay the claim but then, after limitations passed, refused to pay the claim and refused to negotiate any further. There's an example under the Fourth Circuit uh, of a case where this, this happened, where the surety uh, came in and was financing the principal and using the principal to complete various defaulted projects. And the principal was going around telling its subs and suppliers that the surety was going to take care of their claims, don't worry about it, everything will be fine. And so when a supplier asserted a claim after limitations had passed, the surety moved to dismiss. And the court held that under the circumstances of the case, the surety's financial control over the principal and the principal and the surety working together to cure defaults and complete projects essentially rendered the principal the surety's agent. And so the, the, the actions and the statements of the, of the principal was then imputed to the surety and equitable estoppel was applied to that claim. Um, other times, limitations can be told or even restarted if there is an acknowledgment of the, that the debt was owed or a partial payment is made, uh, those circumstances can result in the limitations period uh, being told or starting to run again. So uh, that's all I have for today on limitations. Uh, let me close out by, um, and before we open up for the Q&A period, I want to let everybody know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, September 11, 2017 at 12.30 Eastern Time. Our topic will be Understanding Builders' Risk Insurance as a Salvage or Loss Mitigation Tool. Uh, events in the surety industry coming up, it's uh, pretty busy in September. The Perlman Surety Conference in Seattle will be on September 6th through the 8th. The Northeast Surety Fidelity Claims Conference will be held from September 13th through the 15th at Caesars Palace in Atlantic City. And if you're going to be in the Philadelphia area, there will be a, a Northeast Sponsors Dinner on September 12th at Amada's in downtown Philly. You can email me if you would like to attend and I'll get the details to you. That's mstover at wcslaw.com. The Atlanta Surety Claims Lunch will be September 17th. The Chicago Surety Claims Lunch will be September 21st. And the Philadelphia Surety Claims Lunch will be September 27th. So let me unmute the line here. Okay, so uh, if there's any questions. Hey, Mike, one correction. Um, this is Christina Craddock. Um, the Atlanta Surety Claims Association luncheon is on August 17th, not September 17th. Oops, yep, that's right. 
Sorry about that. And you got, uh, what do you got, Greg Veal speaking, I think? Yes, on uh, preserving your collateral. Yeah, he's a good speaker, everybody. Anybody, anything else, questions? One additional note, Mike, when you were talking about the uh, limitations in South Carolina being 20 years for sealed documents, there's an interesting quirk there because the statute that provides that, um, it relates solely to um, real estate documents, um, bonds for the sale of real estate. And, and so there is an argument available that even if the other side argues that the bond is under seal and subject to the 20-year limitations, um, you can argue that that particular statute does not apply to construction-related bonds. It just gives you a little okay. bit of leverage. The courts yeah, are not going to give you summary judgment on it. But It's funny with these 20-year limitations period. I mean, that, that doesn't further any of the policy considerations for limitations. I mean, 20 years, people, people do die. People do move on, and, and documents get lost. I, I can't imagine why they go with a 20-year period. But in any event, any other questions? Any other corrections? <laughs> Sorry. All right, guys. Thanks very much, and uh, talk to Thank everybody you. next month. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.